The first scripture reading is 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 through 23. Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleating of the sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have bought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, Though thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites and fight against them, against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst that which was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amal Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the devoted things, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as idolatry and teraphim. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. And I'd like you to turn to the New Testament I want you to turn, first of all, to James, the little book, letter of James, chapter 3, from verse 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by his good life his works in, we in meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter jealousy and faction in your heart, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom is not a wisdom that cometh down from above, but is earthly, sensual, or physical, and devilish, demonic. For where jealousy and faction are, there is confusion and every vile deed. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without variance, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace 
for them that make peace. And then if you will turn to the Galatian letter, Galatian letter, the Galatian letter, chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth unto his own flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth unto the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap eternal life. And then, if you will turn to 1 Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, from verse 1 to 3. 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, from verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak un, unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal or fleshly, as unto babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with meat, for you were not yet able to bear it. Nay, not even now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you jealousy and strife, are ye not carnal? And do ye not walk after the manner of men? And lastly, in Romans, the Roman letter, chapter 8. The Roman letter, chapter 8. Two verses, verses 12 and 13. So then, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye must die. But if by the Spirit ye put to death the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Shall we just bow together in a further word of prayer? Dear Lord, we need you so especially this evening when we deal with as complex a character as Saul, we need the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that the lessons of that life may be burnt into our hearts. Lord, we call upon you to be with us in this time. We want to recognize, Lord, that natural speaking and natural hearing will not get us anywhere. We need that enabling grace and power of yours to be upon my speaking and our hearing so that, Lord, your purpose in our time be fulfilled and your word is deposited in our lives. Lord, hear us then as we commit ourselves to you. By faith we take that anointing, Lord, to lift us above the heat or the circumstances around us or the situations we may be facing. Enable us, Lord, by that renewing of your Spirit and that marvelous ministry of grace and power 
Enable us, Lord, to give ourselves to you and to attend to you. We ask it with thanksgiving in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. In my responsibility during this time together, I have had laid on my heart four characters that lead up to the establishment of the kingdom of God and the building of the house of God. If you like, the fulfilling of the purpose of God. Those four characters are Samuel, Saul, David, and Solomon. And um, each one of them has something to say to us, positively or negatively, about coming to the throne of God, about being involved in the bringing in of the kingdom of God, being involved in the building of the house of the Lord, being involved in doing the will of God or fulfilling the purpose of God in our day and generation. Last night we considered Samuel because he really is foundational. In fact, really, Samuel is the one who brought the kingdom in. And um, in many ways, Samuel was the one who laid, as it were, the whole foundation for the temple to be built in the end by his ministry and by his character. But I'm not going to go over what we said about Samuel. What I want to do straight away is to consider this unbelievably complex character, King Saul. I imagine that many people have real sympathy for, for Saul. Um, when we really study this man's life, he is not ne it's not nearly as black and white that we can just put him on one side and easily judge him as utterly evil, utterly wicked, godless or without the Lord. It's not as simple as that. This character is an unbelievably complex character. And I have no doubt at all in my heart that the lesson we can learn through Saul is probably the most important lesson we could learn concerning being involved, practically, relevantly involved in the bringing in of the kingdom of God and the building of the house of the Lord. I can put it almost in a word. The man of flesh, he can be saved, he can have a great knowledge of the Bible, he can have a knowledge of the things of, the God, of God, he may work in the work of God, but the man of flesh cannot be involved in bringing in the kingdom of God or in the building of the house of the Lord. There may be all the devotion in him. There may be much sacrifice in him. There may be much knowledge in him. But also within him are the seeds of his own destruction. Within his very life, within his very character, there are the seeds that lead to his being diverted from the purpose of God. Now, my dear friends, this is not some fairy story. Wherever we look today in the work of the Lord, we see men who began with the Spirit and have ended in the flesh. 
men who have a real anointing but somehow or other have fallen. Men in many cases who've had revelation given to them of the purpose of God and have ended up not building the kingdom of God but building their own empire. It's everywhere for us to see. Nor do we have to look all around us. In actual fact, we have only to look within. For if we are honest, we will discover within us, perhaps on a much smaller scale, that we will see within ourselves the very same character, the very same trees, if you like, that shut us out from being involved in bringing in the kingdom of God. Now I want to make it abundantly clear that this Saul came to the kingdom and he sat on the throne and he was anointed with the same holy oil that David was anointed with. Which speaks to me of one thing. We are not dealing with an unsaved man. We are dealing with a man who is a child of God. We are dealing with someone who belongs to God's covenant people. He was circumcised as David was circumcised. He belonged to God's covenant people as David belonged to covenant people. He was a member of one of the twelve tribes of Israel as David was a member of one of the twelve tribes of Israel. Yet, in spite of the fact of being in the kingdom, he could not stay on the throne. He had a kind of character that means that God has to veto it. God has to ban that kind of character from coming to the throne or every kind of confusion and division and vile deed will come into the kingdom of God. So this matter of Saul is of tremendous importance. It is true, tonight we're looking at the negative and not the positive. But it is of tremendous importance for us to learn this lesson. It is an uncomfortable picture that we shall look at tonight. Uncomfortable because it comes so near uh, to us. So the first thing I want to underline is very simple. Mere flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Mere flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It may be noble flesh. It may be decent flesh. It may be gifted flesh, talented flesh, but mere flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It may have about it so much that is good, but mere flesh cannot inherit the kingdom 
of God. It cannot reach God's goal. It has within it a bias. I don't know if you know anything, you're most of you probably too young, and of course too American anyway, but I don't know if any of you know that ancient game, one of the most ancient games in the world, bowls. No, I don't mean those tin pan alley things. I mean the real old game of what Francis Drake played, you know, when the Armada came up and so on. You know, uh, that bowl has within it a bias. It doesn't matter how straight you throw that ball, it goes off at an angle. And this is a picture of the carnal Christian. He has within him a bias. It doesn't matter how it looks as if he'll hit the ball. He can't. There's a bias in it that ta takes him off. Do you understand? This man of flesh cannot sit with Christ in the throne. It is impossible I'm going to say something else. Please listen very carefully to me tonight. He wants to obey God, but he cannot. He wants to be devoted to the Lord. He wants to give himself unconditionally to the Lord, but he cannot. He finds that within him there is a power almost endemic pathological, within his very nature, within his very life. And he cannot give himself in the end. He can use the words, but almost as soon as the words are out of his lips, he has to serve self. He wants to recognize the mind of the Lord. And in many ways, theologically, he does recognize the mind of the Lord. But when it comes to practical situations, he does what the world does. Oh, my friends, all I can say is this, I don't know about you, but this is me. We, we can have a great respect for the word of God. A great respect for the law of God. A real recognition of divine principles. But still we find that when it comes to actual practical situations, we do what the world does. We fall back on the fashion of this world. We fall back in the ways of this world. We fall back into what all unsaved people do in the end. This is the man of flesh. This is the story of Saul. Please think for a few moments. First of all, I have to be very careful here. Um, Saul was head and shoulders above all the others. Now, there are quite a few here that are head and shoulders, sort of tall people. But this man was magnificent. To look at. He was magnificent. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 2, it is put in quite simple, clear terms. 
Here was a man's man and the kind of man that the whole world could respect and go after. Listen to it. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a, a young man and a goodly. And there was none among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. Outwardly, this man was magnificent. A marvelous figure, marvelous stature. I don't have any doubt that he walked magnificently. He had handsome looks. Everything about this man, he was endowed physically, outwardly, with everything that one could associate with royalty. Then I want you to notice something else about this man. And this comes as a shock. Of course, I've already said he was one of God's covenant people. But he was thoughtful and caring. This wasn't some delinquent. This soul was not some rebellious drug addict or alcoholic. This man went out searching for his father's asses. Now, you are at a loss here because you probably don't understand all the places that are mentioned here in, uh, in uh, uh, ch chapter 9 and verse uh, 21 and so on. But you know, it is very, very interesting. Um, I live just a few miles from where all this happened. And I have walked up these valleys and in where there were roads I've driven up these valleys. And this whole land of Benjamin is a land of deep ravines and gorges and high mountains. And it's, it's impossible territory. This young man went out looking for these wretched asses and he came from a reasonably good family. He could have easily said, Dad can buy another bunch of asses. But he went out and he sought and he sought and he sought and he sought. He wasn't some delinquent playboy. He was caring. He was thoughtful. He was not only that, he was humble. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 21, we read these words. And Saul answered and said, Am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? Am I family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou to me after this manner? But even more interesting, if you look at chapter 10 and verse 22, this is almost amusing. Uh, uh, Therefore they asked of the Lord further, Is there yet a man to come hither? And the Lord answered, Behold, he hath hid himself among the baggage. Now I think that's amazing, this fellow who was head and shoulders above all the rest. He was in one sense naturally so humble that he ran away and hid himself in the, um, the baggage. <laughs> this is all the great baggage that goes on the camels, you understand. And so by crouching down behind them, he could hide himself from uh, visibility for a while. This is not the normal picture people have of Saul. They think of a man who's arrogant, presumptuous, proud, 
big-headed, his pride is as big as his height and his stature and his looks. It's not the picture we get of Saul. He is not only thoughtful and caring and responsible, he is also, in one sense, naturally modest. He has a modest side to his personality and to his nature. He is also magnanimous. If you look at 1 Samuel 11, verse 12 and 13, you just have to know, of course, what had happened before. There had been, first of all, when Saul was chosen to be king, a whole lot of the young fellows who knew him said, we won't have him. He, we, won't, we won't respect him. We, we, we will not obey him. Then, when the Philistines came against the children of Israel, and it says every one of the children of Israel quaked and trembled at the news of the Philistines coming up against them, Saul said, don't fear. The Lord is with us. And you remember the story. He went out and a tremendous victory was given to Israel. Then the whole of Israel said, bring out those base fellows who said they would not obey Saul and we will execute every one of them in front of him. Now the kind of person many of us consider Saul to be, you would have thought he would have delighted in that. This is the man who flung a javelin at David. This is the man who sought to kill David. You would have thought he would have said, I want those fellows out of the way altogether. But not um, Saul. He said in this verse, and the people said unto Samuel, who is he that said, Saul, Saul, reign over us. Bring the men that we may put them to death. And Saul said, there shall not a man be put to death this day. For today the Lord hath wrought deliverance in Israel. Now I think here you get another picture of Saul and it's very important for us to get this picture or we shall never get the lesson. But I want to go a bit further. It's a little more shocking, I'm sorry, uh, to us. Paul was not only thoughtful and responsible, not only modest in one sense in his personality, not only magnanimous in his dealing with those who had antagonized him or stood against him. He was spiritually gifted. This man went amongst the prophets and prophesied, and so came the saying into Israel, which is with us to this day in Hebrew. Is Saul amongst the prophets? He prophesied. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and prophesied. Now, I don't know why some people have got a big thing about prophecy. They feel that if you can only prophesy, that is it. You have reached a standard and a status that is at the very top. My dear friend, I always say to people, Balaam's ass prophesied. I mean, it's not actually so amazing. It is not really so amazing. Balaam, if an ass can prophesy, so can you. So can I. 
I don't know what this is, this superstition that we have amongst us, that if something a little more abnormal, a little more supernatural takes place, then, then that has put us on a very high pinnacle. This man prophesied. Upon this man came the Spirit of the Lord. This man was found amongst the prophets. He lay all day on his face before the Lord. So he was spiritually gifted. But just wait. <laughs> before we can finish this picture of this remarkable and complex man, there are two more things. First of all, he recognizes what is of God. There's one remarkable thing about Saul. He could recognize what is of the Lord. He recognized that Samuel was truly of God. And when Samuel turned on one occasion saying, it's finished, it's finished, God has finished, he got hold of his garment and tore it. He, was, he wanted to hold him, he wanted to keep him. And even at the end, he got a medium to bring Samuel up from the dead. What an incredible man. He read the, why, why was there within Saul's heart such jealousy? Because he recognized in David a man after God's own heart. Someone somehow in a different dimension to himself of another, of another ilk. This is a different picture to the picture some people paint of Saul. They paint a man that is gross, that is sensual, that is without gift spiritually, with no graces naturally. It is not true. And there was one last thing before we finish this. At times he honored God's word. It is a most amazing thing you will find in 1 Samuel chapter 14 from verse uh, 3 to, uh, to uh, 35. You find the most amazing story of when the, in a great battle, the, with, and Jonathan went out and won this battle. They, the, the, it was reported to Saul, the people are eating flesh with blood in it. And Saul was angry. And he immediately went out and made sure that, that they did not, from that moment onwards, continue to eat meat with blood in it. It's interesting to me because this man broke so many other uh, of the laws of God. But there was a mixture. That's what I'm trying to get over to you. I'm trying to just get you to see. It's not just easy to say, Saul was all bad. He wasn't all bad. There was a tremendous amount about the man that was good. And not only good, but noble. And not only noble, but we would almost say, uh, without discernment, spiritual. And yet this man cannot come to the throne of God. Now please, 
Now we can look <coughs> at the lesson properly. We can look at the man of flesh or the carnal Christian. The man of flesh places all the emphasis on outward appearances and talents and not the heart and character. You only have to have a few signs and wonders. You only have to have a miracle or two. You only have to have some power and everybody looks at that. It's just what it says in the word of God. The children of Israel, they saw the acts of the Lord. Moses understood his ways. There is a vast difference in just seeing the acts of the Lord. Now you do understand when I say this, I'm all for the acts of the Lord. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, the more signs and wonders we have, the more evidence for the presence of the Lord, the more marvelous it is. I don't have any problem with this, this kind of, this idea, this, this sort of, uh, I, don't, I don't want to go into it. Anyway, the thing is, there's an idea amongst some so-called spiritual people, don't touch anything like that. It's, it's all passed away. It's nonsense. Whenever the Spirit of the Lord has moved in the whole history of the church, there have been signs and wonders, evidence that God is present. I'm all for the acts of the Lord. But with the acts of the Lord, we have to understand the ways of the Lord. Far more important than seeing the acts of the Lord is to understand the ways of the Lord. The man of flesh stops always at appearances. That's why he can be deceived. That's why he can be led astray. That's why he can be diverted. People come to me again and again and they say, how is it we got into this deception? How did we get deceived? How did we get led astray? My dear friend, the reason is we look at appearances. That's why sometimes these appearances are biblical. Sometimes they seem very spiritual. Sometimes they are actual acts of the law, but we don't see beyond. That is the first thing. <clears throat> Here is the second. The carnal Christian, a man of flesh, woman of the flesh, cannot wait for the Lord. This is the acid test. They cannot wait for the Lord. They have to have instant churches, instant empires, instant hierarchies, instant elderships. <laughs> you understand. Instant diaconates, instant apostolates, instant prophetic orders. They've got to have the whole thing in a few days, a few months. They can't wait for the Lord. They can't wait for the Holy Spirit to work organically, to produce things. Instead, they have to rush in where angels fear to tread. And therefore, we have every conceivable New, Past New Testament pattern church in existence, especially in the United States and especially on the West Coast. It seems as if every conceivable experiment that could have ever been made in church life has taken place somewhere up and down this coast. <laughs> and the whole thing is we can't wait for the Lord. 
there wouldn't have been any of that waiting like the Apostle Paul, waiting for elders to develop, waiting for the gifted ones to be made manifest, waiting for the local assemblies to see it. He may have known who was going to be those people, but he waited for the Spirit of the Lord, not only to bring them to the right place, but for even those local fellowships, as it were, to recognize these people are the Lord's choice. There's so much that I could say on this matter, but then we'd be here all night. You see, when I say the man of flesh cannot wait for the Lord, let me put it another way. The man of flesh loves shortcuts. If we can only get to holiness in an instant, if we can only get to maturity by a shortcut, if we can bypass the cross and get into a prosperity, if we can only come to the end, fullness, power, Glory without the cross, without dying. This is the man of flesh. Now, think. Think. You really don't need me up here this evening. If you think, you will see this principle illustrated on every side. But you don't have to look at others. You will find the same capacity within your own heart, within your own natural life. We want shortcuts. We want Everything instant. Just like instant coffee, instant tea. I've never heard of anything so abominable <laughs> as instant tea. Now, I'll leave the coffee to you. You can have the instant coffee if you want. But instant tea, it is the most terrible thing in the world. <laughs> and I have no doubt in the end the doctors will find that it causes all kinds of diseases. <laughs> Instant everything, instant whipped cream, instant this, instant that, instant pies, instant cakes, instant everything. Come into the Christian realm and we have the whole instant thing there. It is amazing. Man's schemes, man's technique, man's methodology, way of the world, the right thing done the wrong way. This is the man of the flesh. You find it very early on in Saul. <clears throat> you find it in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. You will remember the story. I, I'm relying, I hope, on your knowledge of the life of Saul. But you will remember, he'd been told by the Lord through Samuel, he must wait. 
And he must wait for Samuel to come. But then as he waited, the people began to get all nervy and neurotic. And, and you know, it was pre-battle nerves. And, 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 and they said, we've got to get on with it. We've got to get on with it. Well, where's Samuel? Where's Samuel? Why doesn't Samuel come? But they couldn't find Samuel anywhere. And um, uh, you know the whole story, I, I think, how finally they, uh, they, um, uh, I'll have to wait till he's finished. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's so kind of you. Yes, it's lovely. <laughs> I don't know about everybody else, but it's going to help me. <laughs> Um, you will remember the story. Samuel waited, and he waited, and then people began to desert and go back. They hid themselves in, in caves and holes and ran away for fear because they, they was pre-battle -ner, pre nerves. And uh, finally, Saul said, well, I, I, I'll do it. I'll do it. And he sacrificed the sacrifice. And almost immediately, Samuel appeared. Patience is the one thing the man of flesh has not got. Now, there is a kind of patience which is not patience. Now, let me get this quite clear. There's a certain kind of person who never does anything. And they tell us it's patience. It's not patience at all. It's unbelief. Well, we're not talking about that. <laughs> Those kind of people who stop everything and never take a step forward and never pioneer anything and never are prepared to move forward. We're not talking about that. That's not patience. But real patience is when a man of action is kept waiting for the Lord. When a person who's positive, when a person who's active has to wait for the Lord, then that is the test of spiritual character. Can they wait on the Lord, and can they wait for the Lord? The man of flesh cannot do that. Then there is something else. The man of flesh always keeps what is good in his flesh. Now this finds us all out. We can't help it. We sort through ourselves, you know what I mean, in the we say, well, now that's bad. That must, I, the Lord must deal with that. And, and that's ignoble. The Lord must deal with that. And that's base. The Lord must deal with that. But that is talented. And I'll devote that to the Lord. And, and that, that's gifted. I'll devote that to the Lord. And, and that, that is noble. I'll give that to the Lord. And we get this idea that the Lord wants to sort of um, splice us in two, if you know what I mean. He wants to take all the bad things in our flesh and, and, and put them to death. And all the good things in our flesh are to be sanctified, consecrated to the service of God. My dear child of God, 
the, the church of God and the work of the Lord has suffered far more from consecrated flesh than base and ignoble flesh. I have known people who've had such an organizing talent that they could organize the Holy Spirit out of any work of the Lord given just one solid month. I could actually give you examples of it. Let them loose with their natural gift. Well, of course, it comes from the Lord. This isn't from the pit. This gift of organizing in me, this, this gift of administration in me, this isn't from the pit. This is a marvelous gift. This is a God-given gift. I will devote it to the Lord. Let them loose in the work of the Lord and you kill the work of the Spirit. Now, I know that this raises problems. What do we do with those who have musical gift? I mean, do we destroy it? What do we do, do with those who have a gift for singing? And I may also say, as sometimes, a gift for speaking. Now, do we consecrate all these natural gifts? My dear friend, the point is this. Those gifts the Lord may use or may not use, but if he uses them, they will have come through the death and burial and resurrection of Calvary. Then when they come through that process, God can fill them with his glory and fill them with his power and people no longer hear you, they hear the Lord. And they no longer in one sense see you, they see the Lord. I think in that passage that we read together, there was a question that Samuel asked that goes right to the heart of this matter. You know, Saul said in, uh, uh, in 1 Samuel 15, and uh, uh, Samuel said in verse, uh, chapter 15 and verse 13, Samuel came to Saul and Saul said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And um, this man of flesh really believed he had done that. He had put to death all the blemished, all the diseased, all the ugly, and kept the best. And this best was to be consecrated to the Lord. I have done what the Lord has commanded. And Samuel asked one question. What meaneth the bleating of this sheep? I think there's a lot of bleating in many of our lives. It's a good question. The man of flesh always tries to use his best gifts 
and his best energies for the Lord. But he finds that within him there is a poison. There is a deviance. And with the best intentions in the world, he cannot go straight. This I always think immediately of our Lord's words. When he began to speak about going to the cross, and Peter said to him, Lord, you can't do that. Never, Lord. Never. We won't allow it to happen. And the Lord turned around and looked into his eyes and said, Get behind me, Satan. If I were to say to some of you this evening, if you came to me with a question about something and you said, no, 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 I don't think that's the, the, the right way, really I don't, and I turned around to you and looked into your eyes and said, get behind me, Satan. You would go to some of the brothers responsible for this conference and you would say, we don't want that kind of speaker back in this place. I mean, it's one thing if, you, if I was to say to you, listen, I think you're thinking negatively. <laughs> or if I were to say to you, I think that you are perhaps subject to some demonic activity or uh, some sort of dark uh, uh, force that's, that's manipulating you in the way you're thinking. This doesn't sound... But for, you, for me to say to you, get behind me, Satan... You say, that is the most terrible thing I have ever heard in my life. You call me Satan. How could you call a child of God Satan? But Jesus called Peter Satan. He said, get behind me, Satan. Thou mindest not the things of God, but the things of men. What did Jesus mean? He meant simply this. Your best intentions, your best talents, your best energies, the most noble part of your flesh, has within it a ground for Satan. It will never allow the full will of God to be done in your life or in the life of others. It will not go to the cross. You remember, Jesus said immediately after this, when he said, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou mindest not the things of God, but the things of men. Then immediately he brought them all together, the disciples with the multitude, and said, If any man come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. He that would save his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall find it. So my dear friend, we're dealing with something that lies at the very heart of the whole work of God. It lies at the heart of what the Lord calls spiritual character. Christ-like character. It is not the consecration of your old man. It is not the consecration of your old nature. However talented, however decent, however energetic it is for God, that's not what the Lord wants. 
And we see it in Saul. Can I put it another way? In the final analysis, uncrucified flesh cannot obey the Lord. It can obey up to a point. It can go so far, but in the ultimate, the final, it cannot go through with it. There is a deviant in it. There is a bias in it that takes us out. We cannot face the totality of the cross and the totality of the work of the Spirit. Everywhere I go, and I glean myself in such an experience, but everywhere I go, I hear people speaking about the baptism of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the anointing of the Spirit. Why doesn't anyone talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire? When the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, he will burn up the dark. He will take us to, to be a total burnt offering to the Lord. Not just the good. Every part of us on the altar and out of the ashes will come a new life. That is the labor of regeneration. The, the altar of burnt offering spells total absolute death to all that we are. This is too much for us. It was too much for Saul. Now you begin to understand him. Now you begin to understand, oh, how like us he is. How like him we are. Please, we must go on. But if you don't remember anything else, remember this one sentence. The carnal Christian, in the final analysis, in the ultimate, cannot obey God. Now I'm going to speak about a matter which some of you may want to close your ears. You will find it a little bit too hard to take. Undealt with flesh invites demonic activity. Undealt flesh invites demonic activity. What do I mean? I mean this. An uncrucified self-life, however noble, however gifted, however talented, will always be ground for demonic activity. That's why you can begin with the Lord and end with the flesh. You can begin with the Spirit and end in destruction. That's why we see all around us men with real anointing, real gift, 
who now have fallen in one way or another or built enormous empires that they have to keep funded and have become slaves to funding instead of bond slaves of the Lord Jesus. Some people would say this is just the flesh. I hope that it is. But I have to tell you, when Saul was not prepared for the absolute and total work of the Spirit of the Lord, an evil spirit came upon him. And into his heart came a jealousy that was never there to begin with. Into his heart came a jealousy, a demonic jealousy, and a faction. He couldn't control himself. This noble man, this magnanimous man, this modest man, this man who could recognize the things of God, he took a javelin and flung it at David. He was so mad at one point that he would have killed even his own son, Jonathan. You only have to look at the story. It's in chapter 16, verse 14. And if anyone has any problem about this, I'll give you another scripture. Here was this man who actually two or three times repented, but never allowed the Lord to really deal with him. And in the end, he goes to a witch. He actually goes to a witch, a medium. You will find it in chapter 28. Now, my dear friends, what did Jesus mean when he said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan? What did James mean when he said this wisdom is sensual, devilish? Sometimes we've taken the meaning out of that word devilish so that we speak of something being, well, devilish, meaning it's horrific or, or unpleasant. But the word actually means Demons are in it. This wisdom which is not from above, this wisdom of this world which most of us use and which we see as the common wisdom in our church affairs and in the work of the Lord can sometimes have demonic activity in it. Is there any wonder then that there's faction, division, jealousies, rival, gossip, Let me take one more step. The man of flesh is jealous of his position, jealous of his work, jealous of his influence. He always feels threatened. 
He can never spontaneously and honestly, genuinely recognize a gift and go in with it. He always feels that somehow he's threatened by that other person's gift, that other person's position, that other person's influence. The New Testament speaks a lot about this. The works of the flesh. This wisdom which is from this earth, from this world. It's full of jealousy and strife. Oh, my dear friends. Are not our fellowships filled sometimes with jealousy and strife? And are they not sometimes wrecked by feeling threatened by another person's gift? The possibility that one of those other brothers or sisters may, may, may have a more powerful influence, a more powerful gift than I have. Oh, this thing, we, we don't want it. We don't want it. But we can't help it. <clears throat> this kind of thing leads to manipulation. What happens is this. When we feel threatened by somebody else, we start to manipulate things so that they cannot have too much influence or too much power. It is a manipulation, and manipulation is a form of witchcraft. You have exactly the same thing in the matter of assassination. Now, none of us, I think, would go so far as to assassinate one another Actually, but my dear friend, many of us are involved in the assassination of another person's character. The thing we call gossip is often just nothing other than assassination. We assassinate another person. And sometimes at the root of that spirit of assassination, that spirit of gossip is a, a, a fear of that person's gift, a fear of that person's influence. This is the flesh. One last thing about this picture of Saul before we talk a little bit about the more positive is this. The man of, please listen, if you've gone to sleep, just wake up. The man of flesh ends always the same way as Saul, playing the fool and exceeding, erring exceedingly. These were the words of Saul almost at the end. I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. What a tragedy to come to the end of our life as a believer down here of our physical life and to say, I've played the fool and erred exceedingly. I just play-acted all the way through and there's nothing real in my life, nothing genuine in my life. 
I've carried it all through with outward appearance, with a projected image of spirituality, with my natural gift, my natural talent. But I've played the fool and I've erred exceedingly. Saul died by his own hand, and so do all men of the flesh. You may not physically end your life, but those that sow to the flesh reap corruption unto death. It is as if you've taken a sword and committed harakun. As if you had like, like, like Saul, slain yourself with your own sword. Listen to the words of Jesus. He that saveth his life loseth it. And he that loseth his life for my sake and the gospel shall find it. There is no more real way of committing a kind of suicide than being a man or a woman of the flesh. Now, <clears throat> lest we be left with a great heaviness, what is God's answer to the carnal man? I mean this poor soul. I don't know if you have such great sympathy for him. No doubt some of you do. Always, if I ever have spoken on Saul, I have a whole number of people come up to me afterwards, I feel so sorry for him. Well, uh, the Lord will do the right thing by Saul in the end, so you can rest. But the fact remains the story is there as a warning. It's no good feeling sorry for Saul because maybe you see him in yourself. Are you going to end the same way? Or are you going to let the warning of the Lord come to you and challenge you and alert you and finally almost electrify you so that for the first time you wake up to the possibility that you might be a soul, I might be a soul, and that we might end the same way as Saul? A reject from the throne. What is the answer? First, the absolute lordship of Jesus. The absolute lordship of Jesus. I don't mean calling him Lord, Lord, and doing not what the things that he says, but I mean what it says in um, 1 Corinthians 12, by the Spirit calling Jesus Lord, so that it is genuine, it is in reality, you're ready at whatever cost to follow the Lord. If he says stop, you will stop. If he says go, you will go. If he says wait, you will wait. But you are going to be under the absolute lordship 
of Jesus. Let me put it another way. If you and I do not want to end the same way as Saul and be a reject from the throne of God, we must learn the lesson of utter obedience. At the very heart of Saul's experience are these words, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. Absolutely. Are you ready to be obedient? You're fearful. You're fearful of what it might mean for your life. I tell you, my dear friends, I don't want to take away that fear. Because if I were to belittle that fear in you, there's no faith. It is that fear of what the Lord may require of you, that fear of the unknown, the fear of committing your life out of your hands into his hands that makes you trust him. You can never obey him if you don't first trust him. Now, if I may put it this way, you can believe in the Lord, but it's not quite the same as trusting the Lord. Do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> you're to trust the Lord then you can obey the Lord I could say to you this evening that if you obey the Lord you will find in the end nothing to be ashamed of nothing to regret only to praise the Lord but I don't know why none of us like it. I mean, we, we sort of think, oh dear, I wish he hadn't brought this matter up because I just know that if I start to really obey the Lord, I mean deeply, truly, totally obey the Lord, well, you younger people will probably think, I know what it is, I'm going to be a monk. Or I'm going to be a nun, that's what's required of me. If this, this is the way it's going to be, but my dear friend, whatever the Lord requires of you. It is for your good. Anyway, I won't say more. Because nobody can take a step of obedience without trusting the Lord. You've got to trust him. There is a cost attached to obedience. What is the cost that is attached to obedience? Denying yourself and taking up your cross and following him. That's the cost. It won't come down. There's no cheap way. There's no shortcut. That's the only way that you can follow the Lord. There's no other way to become a disciple. It is the only way. My dear friends, the Holy Spirit is the only one who can enable us to do these things. Isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul says, by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body? 
nobody can ever overcome this deepest instinct in us all to glorify ourselves, to fulfill ourselves, to express ourselves, to make way for ourselves, to assert ourselves. We can't help it, it's natural. Only when the Spirit of the Lord is in a person and upon a person can that person for the first time do the impossible. I say it is impossible to take up your cross and follow him. Of course there are people who do it in his religion. And then we get all this unbelievable artificial piety. Everything's dark, everything's heavy. When we sing it's like a memorial service. Everything's in a funeral march. This is the cross for some people. Actually it's religiousness. Not the cross at all. But when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon a person, then the Spirit of the Lord enables you for the first time to give up all right to yourself and take up your cross and follow him. I will close, but let me close this way by just explaining to you what that meant. You see, we have the wisdom of hindsight. We see these words of Jesus from Calvary, and we look back, and so we understand that Jesus was talking, as it were, from Calvary. There's nothing wrong with that. But when those disciples first heard Jesus say this stunning thing, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, give up all right to himself, take up his cross and follow me. It was stunning. Every one of them had seen a very common sight. In the crowded souks and bazaars of Jerusalem, there would be a sudden commotion and people would be pushed out of the way by some soldiers and suddenly either a slave would appear with a great placard and on the placard was written a person's crime and then coming up just behind was the person himself with the crossbeam. You see those pictures of Jesus carrying a cross. They're not right. (laughs) Because Jesus never carried a full cross. The upright was always in position. The person who was being executed carried the cross beam on their shoulders to the place of execution. And then their hands were nailed to the cross beam and it was hauled up into place and finally the feet were nailed to the vertical. Now, what did they understand when Jesus said this? They understood one thing clearly. That person carrying the cross beam was not yet dead but had the sentence of death within. The sentence of death had been already pronounced. They had no more rights. They were on their way to execution. Now, my dear friend, you and I have been crucified with Christ, in Christ. 
But you and I cannot crucify ourselves. In actual fact, all we can do is to accept the sentence of death from God. That means we give up rights. We say, I'm a dead person, I have no more rights. The Lord arranges circumstances, situations, relationships, whether they're in your office, whether they're in your family, whether they're in the fellowship. <laughs> but he arranges them beautifully and they crucify you. You don't have to worry about it. You will have your experience within hours, certainly within days. Once you have accepted the sentence of death, once you've seen that with Christ you've been crucified and you accept that sentence of death within yourself, then for the first time the Lord can deliver you from the man or the woman of flesh. He can transform. There's no need for us to end like Saul. We can end like Samuel. Or we can end like David. Or even like Solomon. There is no need. We're going to pray. But the choice is yours. Will you be a soul? Or will you be a Samuel? Will you be a soul or will you be a David? The choice is yours. Let us pray. <clears throat> Let's have a moment of quietness. God has spoken to you. Don't let this be lost in a whole welter of talk or other things in the silence and quietness of your heart. Have dealings with God. It's not too much to say that our very destiny could be decided this evening. Whether we come to the throne of God or whether we are rejected, all God's grace is with us if we will only obey him. Father, write this word in our hearts. It's a hard word, a difficult word, but write it in our hearts. We are so used to jealousy and faction and division and confusion, to all this that we see in Saul. Deliver us from it, Lord, we pray, by your marvelous grace.
and love. Lord, will you bring us to a new place? You can do it, Lord. So by your Holy Spirit, have dealings with us this night. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.